All right. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. This is a live broadcast. If you miss any of the show, you can always catch us afterwards on the podcasting platforms and later on this evening, also tomorrow on iTunes and some of the other uh, podcasting syndicated platforms. You can always catch us there. So don't worry if you miss any of the live show. It's always there at 21 Wire or at Alternate Current Radio afterwards. Now, our next guest, our next guest uh, is an evolutionary biologist. He's a cognitive scientist, uh, theorist, mathematician. He's also an author. Uh, he's written a number of peer-reviewed articles for a number of academic journals. He is also the CEO of the Human Factory and Vino Optics, and you've probably seen his work. We've reposted at 21st Century Wire, Dr. Mark Changizi and his science moments and a lot of great insight. He's got a fantastic Telegram channel uh, as well and a YouTube channel. There's links to some of those on the show page now if you want to check out Mark's work. Without further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Mark Changizi. Hey, hey, everybody. Good Let's get started with the subject at hand, the COVID crisis from the beginning. Just give us a little synopsis of where you were on the uh, the pandemic spectrum uh, when this all started back in in March 2020. And I always ask people this question because I was. It's interesting to see uh, how people's trajectory of how they're perceiving what was going on and how their views changed over time. And when that happened, what and what brought them on this sort of, you know, intellectual path or dissident path, I guess you could call it now, where they are today. What, how did this all play out for you? Because I know you're a keen uh, observer of human psychology and uh, how we uh, how we humans uh, go about our daily lives. How, how did this this all play out for you? Yeah, I mean, unlike some folks who, you know, I have a lot of a lot of folks who admit to them, they say, yeah, I was originally thinking there was something serious going on, and for the first month or so, they were part of the hysteria, and then sort of switched over. In my case, from my first tweet was on March 10th, and I was trying to calm folks down because you could tell, and I had been traveling. I was in Turkey, and and my wife was going to go to Iran, and all of this stuff was hitting, and she decided not to go back because things looked complicated. And so I, I wasn't able to even get to, I wasn't really on Twitter much at that point. Um, and you know, my first tweet was like, everybody is prefacing the word COVID with deeply dangerous and, you know, uh, adjectives preceding it, which were on, you know, seemingly hyping it up. Not that they were purposely doing it per se, but it had become a hyped up, a clearly a hyped up, uh, sort of self-reinforcing positive feedback loop that was going on between people and uh, journalists and politicians already in a, in a big loop and as of late February and early March. And it was just obvious to me, it just felt exactly like, like a hysteria, like a problem with uh, the dynamics of, of a social dynamics, not an actual uh, epidemiological issue per se, or at least that's not the most dangerous part of it. So I tweeted very soon thereafter, you know, this, this will be remembered or the moral of coronavirus uh, 19 will be that, uh, spread within social networks is always more dangerous uh, than um, epidemiological spread, something to that effect. And I pinned it there and still been pinned to the top of my Twitter account for the last year and a half. Uh, and, you know, even at that point, the data were there, the data were there from China, from uh, Northern Italy, from the princess cruise that these were, and a uh, uh, nice, uh, the center for uh, evidence-based medicine in Cambridge, 
was compiling these things and showing that the uh, infection fatality rate uh, was, you know, very low, around 0.2 or 0.3%. They even thought then, which turns out to be an overestimate. And everything that we knew then suggested that everything that they were saying was radically uh, astronomically exaggerated. Um, and it's just held up uh, even more so as time has, as, as time has gone on. But so for me, it was obviously a mass delusion uh, right from the start. And I've been trying to, you know, I'm a data scientist. You know, I'm a scientist, so I'm good with data. But there's so many good data scientists out there, and like Rational Ground and Pan Data. There's a lot in Panda, and there's lots of groups out there. I've tried to focus my science moment, focus more at Twitter on the psychosocietal effects, where I have something more unique to say on what kinds of causes at the emergent level can explain these kinds of dynamics, and they're the same ones that underlie totalitarianisms in you know in, in many diverse kinds of cultures but they all have very similar sorts of features and I'm trying to uh, research and understand those sorts of events. So one of the things that strikes me, Mark, you know, is two things. One of them you just said, which is that even though uh, a lot of the early assumptions or overhyped, uh, overestimated uh, hysterical claims, and those are still going strong today, which I find really unbelievable. It just confounds all logic and critical thinking, but what, what's what's also shocking, Mark, is they're not people who are pro lockdown, who are pro mask, uh, the pro vaccine crowd, not just pro vaccine, demanding others take vaccines. They're they're not even bothering with rational arguments anymore. That's kind of out the window. So and forget about the PCR test. That's even sacrosanct now. Um, that, that to me is really shocking because, Mark, how do you go as a society or as a group that has certain beliefs together and they make decisions based on this? How do you where do you go from this point where uh, rational arguments and things like that have been totally discarded? Yeah, and, and, and I would phrase it slightly differently. There's more than one way to try to capture the irrationality that's going on, but it's not really an irrationality at the individual level. So, for example, one way to think about it is that, you know, uh, if you hadn't known anything about our, this new coronavirus, your first assumption should be that it's like all the other coronaviruses. It should have, you know, without evidence otherwise, you should expect that there's seasonality. You should expect that it has certain, all, all the standard sorts of things, that it's not deeply dangerous, that it doesn't typically affect kids. It's disproportionately worried. All the stor normal starting baseline assumptions that you would have on, in the absence of knowing anything about a new coronavirus uh, would be, those standard things. But instead, because of the fear and the panic and the hysteria and the positive feedback loops, they somehow got so that they're, we call it prior probability. So their sort of initial assumption about coronavirus 19 was that it's totally unlike all other coronaviruses ever. And so it has a, like a 0.999, you know, prior probability would say of being totally different and totally more dangerous and totally dangerous. Unlike all the others. And once, I mean, that part is irrational, but once you have that as your, as your prior probability distribution is extremely skewed rather than it being sort of what it should be, then everything else they, they do after that can be completely rational. That is, they can take new evidence that they're given and modulate their previous assumptions, their current assumptions on the basis of the new evidence, and then come up with new, sort of a new set of beliefs. But from then on, they can actually behave rationally from then on and actually still have the crazy beliefs that they have. So you can end up in a world where they really are acting. They are really acting rationally. They are really not dumb. It's just that once their priors are so warped, 
then any rash, any rational person, any scientist will continue to behave in that rational fashion, given those completely bad priors. So it's something about the initial event completely warped everything. And then from then on, it's perfect rationality. All of us would be, would behave in the manner that they are given the new evidence they got, because you've already got extremely warped priors. So a lot of times, and there's more than one way to get at this, uh, a lot of people want to see that in a lot of these explanations are YouTube video going around about mass hysteria and the history of mass hysterias. And they want to compare mass hysterias to individual hysterias, like as if the individuals are crazy. But I think that, that really misses the point. What's dangerous about mass hysterias and also sort of intellectually exciting about it is that you have in whole societies and historically they were just one society rather than the whole world. Um, but they have a whole society, which is acting in a crazy manner yet none of them are crazy. They're all incredibly bright people, well-educated, uh, potentially, you know, really good at math, potentially good at psychology even, and, and, and think about, you know, these sorts of things a lot. But as a group at the emergent level, they become irrational and are engaging irrationally, even though individually they're all incredibly smart. And that's why these things are so frightening. And, um, and, and this, and it's not true to say that they're dumb or they're acting irrationally per se, because each step since then has actually been quite rational. Um, so, so then, so the, if you're, if the, if the priors are warped, if the, you know, the initial assumptions from, from the launch of the get go, what's so what's the mechanism for that? What's the enabler? Is it, is it just fear or fear of personal safety or existential fear? Is that the thing that makes that, that that process of warping their prior assumptions possible because at that point mark then like you said uh, lockdowns are totally rational uh mask mandates are rational uh vaccine mandatory vaccines are rational etc if you have that those initial assumptions what do, what are your thoughts on what the mechanism is at the beginning yeah i mean i and I, so i i i don't you know there are some i, I want to tentatively just mention, I have some, you know, I have a lot of theoretical work in a lot of different areas. And sometimes I got, I have full unified grand theories where I can explain the whole damn kit and caboodle. And, you know, I'm really proud of those sorts of things. And here I have, I have a lot of uh, work that helps me, but I don't have the full grand unifying theory. I, I consider this to be like the trillion dollar problem to society, you know, in freedom is how do you both understand these things, potentially roll them back or inhibit them from occurring in, in the first place. But I think two key things mattered at the start of this that made uh, fear of a pandemic, that is fear one, and then fear of a pandemic makes these things very different from any other kinds of events and much more likely to, to lead to a mass hysteria. Fear of any kind um, is not like other kinds of, uh, if I see you afraid, the perception of you being afraid or the perception of even myself being afraid can lead to a positive feedback loop. So uh, if I'm, a little bit frightened by some funny sound when I'm walking to my car from the mall at night, you know, that gets you uh, excited, so to speak, or, or more, and then every little other sound that you hear can now make you even more afraid, right? So you can get a positive feedback loop by, you know, being afraid can then thereby heighten your ability to continue that positive feedback of becoming more afraid. And if I see uh, Patrick over there, I see you, I see you're afraid. Well, that can make me more afraid. And if you see me afraid, it's like, a, it's like a justification. Well, if Mark's afraid, well, maybe I should be more. And so we can give positive feedback loops to one another. And so fear has that nature, whereas perceiving fear, whereas perceiving, let's say, if I perceive you as thirsty, it's not going to make me thirstier. 
And so I don't become thirstier, which then makes you thirsty. You know, none of that happens. So fear is a little bit different in that way. It can lead to these positive feedback loops. But fear of, let's say, locusts. Imagine like you're in a village and locusts are coming and you see these massive clouds of locusts. If you had fear of locusts, yeah, it might lead to a positive feedback loop and we're all afraid. But what do we do when there's locusts? Well, we're not afraid of one another. We band together. We all cluster together and we start, you know, whatever, protecting the fields and doing whatever we need to do to protect ourselves. But fear of a pandemic um, is completely different because now every other human individual becomes a potential enemy, a potential danger. And now it's like, I call it this, a, you know, a nuclear bomb for society in some sense, because it, it completely undermines the social connections upon which every facet of, you know, uh, of human, our human, you know, a kind depends upon both historically and much more so in our, in our, you know, modern cultures. So it completely undermines it. Separate every intervention, everything that it leads to is, is undermining the connection between uh, a one another. So I think the most dangerous things, and, and this is interestingly, in this case, it really is a pandemic. It's, it was a mild, you know, flu-like overall flu-like virus, safer than flu for most demographics and more dangerous several times maybe than the average flu for 60s and up and especially with comorbidities. But, um, but it, it is real, right? It's, it's, but even in totalitarianism, all the totalitarianisms, I'm not sure if all, but I, I, I would bet that most of the totalitarianisms use metaphors of infection for those who are the enemies who that they, they blame. The Jews are unclean and uh, infectious. The ladies who are letting their hair down, come, you know, curls are coming out of their hijab are unclean and they threaten, uh, you know, Muslim, you know, good Islam society. Uh, the culture, you know, if you were friends with people that were middle class or upper middle class in, in, in China, China, you were a threat. And it was, all of these were asymptomatic. They, it wasn't always something that visible. You could be a bad person. It could be completely invisible, but people could find out and you are there by infectious. And so it, these metaphors of an infectious, a fear of a pandemic like thing are created in those cases, even when they're not real. So imagine if it can happen then when there is no real pandemic and there's nothing infectious about any of those sorts of folks and there's no science underlying it. Now here there really is a pandemic and there's supposedly the science all the hell over the place. So imagine how we're going to put out this fire here. Um, it's going to be incredibly harder, not to mention there's nowhere to run since this is worldwide with the internet connecting the world together. Another important social connection is uh, being able to see another person's uh, face, facial expression. So so how important is, is the mask? I know you've got a book coming out, Unmasked, uh, Why We Express Emotions. That's coming out soon. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, seeing that. But so it's, it's the mask. The mask is kind of the visual. The, the, the virus is invisible, but the mask is there. And when everyone's wearing it, how, how important it was is this part of the story? Well, yeah, I mean, I've got at this point, you know, uh, many science moments on just masks and the varieties of various different angles on masks. But, you know, the book has actually changed its name. The final name is Expressly Human, uh, Decoding the Language of Emotion. It'll be coming out next year. And it's on the, a grand unifying theory about why social animals have emotional expressions in the first place. And it really, the language that we evolved, all social animals evolved for, for speaking, quote unquote, coming up with compromises, negotiating, getting along together is all emotional expressions much of what we do when we're talking is really flourish. We like to imagine that the emotional expressions, the intonation of our voices flourish on top of the substantive 
really important words that we're saying. Usually it's the other way around. People are, you know, you can, uh, you can imagine uh, two different kinds of speakers in front of an audience. You know, you can have one that's talking like a robot and saying really important propositions. No one is going to be uh, following that person out of the room with, you know, go rallying, go do something. But if you have another person who's just basically emotionally expressing themselves in some really aggressive way, but you're not even sure what the heck they were saying, you're much more likely to fall out of the room and go be led off to go do something. The emotions are really what governs nearly 90%. I mean, this is just sort of a fake number, all the kinds of interactions that are happening with us humans, all emotions all the way down. And uh, when you're covering those over, you're completely interfering with our ability to, to truly uh, uh, interact with one another. And that's what the book is about and uh, both in coming to a, a firm theoretical understanding of it. So, you know, masks are, masks are both destroying that. They're destroying your personal identity. And I'm setting aside all the cardiovascular harms and your, it blocks your lower visual field, and which is why, you know, you rely on the visual motor feedback from the lower part of your visual field because you actually see your feet in the lower parts of the ground approaching, even though you're not consciously aware of it. You know, there's all of these sorts of harms. Um, some are more obvious, some are less obvious, but the uh, emotional emotional expressive side, which is really the true language that we speak, uh, is being destroyed. And none of us are consciously aware of it, but we're all brilliant at it. And it undermines that. Uh, the, the thing that, that is really, uh, for me, really uncomfortable is, especially with people who are working in uh, hospitality, for instance, there are a lot of them are still required to wear the mask. A lot of them are young uh, or youngish, you know, 30s and below. And it's when the, when the mask is on, all you can see is the eyes. And is there is there a limit to how long people can maintain eye to eye contact? Because it's not natural. Because we don't normally stare each other in the eyes all the time. But you see a look of terror. But they might not be terrified. They might have a smile under their mask. It's it's almost impossible yeah. to figure out. Have you had any observations on that? Yeah, I hadn't, actually, that's an interesting point. I haven't thought about the fact that. It, it, asking, you know, it's an empirical question, how, uh, usually we, we look at, we, you know, furtively look at the eyes and away from the eyes, but not too much. There's some rate at which we would typically look at other people's eyes and it's somewhat culture dependent as well. Um, but of course we're going to have to do it more often now if we're trying to glean whatever information we can get, because we can still glean, you know, 10% of the emotional expressions, maybe from the eyes alone. And that requires the looking in, at the eyes more often. And that, that itself has social consequences if you're looking into each other's eyes more than you otherwise would. That would typically mean something, right? So I, I haven't actually even thought th that through um, uh, in terms of what that actually, what the consequences are. But that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of very uncomfortable, actually. It's naturally, it just feels uncomfortable. But one, one of your science moments, uh, you've got this series on YouTube called Science Moments. They're really brief. Uh, we've we've reposted uh, one or two of them at 21st Century Wire, and there's one human nature and policy, which you did really recently, and some of the points you made in this were uh, were really great. I, I believe this is the one uh, also that you were talking about uh, the burden of evidence, and kind of the precautionary principle, how they've managed to flip this, uh, where the, there is they they don't believe those who are advocating for heavy pandemic policies don't believe the burden of evidence is on their side. It's they've kind of pushed that kind of back onto the public as it were. And they're saying lockdowns are a precaution. So they're in a way of invoking the precautionary principle. You're making the argument that no, these policies are unproven and the burden of evidence should be actually on 
the government or on public health officials or people who are advocating these things. But just walk us through that argument, because that's a really important argument, because we're running up against this. Everybody is almost on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, from, from the start, I mean, I, I think there's if you don't know what that the precautionary principle is a technical term referring to a particular principle, um, you know, you might say, well, it's just we should just take precautions because there's this danger coming and we should do anything that's possible uh, with these new all these new ingenious schemes to stop that danger. Uh, and so that sounds like I'm appealing to some kind of principle concerning precaution. But the actual precautionary principle is that anybody suggesting some new untested policy is the one that's that you, the precautionary applies to those and say, no, in the absence of really strong evidence, you have either the burden is on the person proposing the new untested policies. And in this case, the new untested policies were lockdowns, shutdowns, school closures, social distancing, uh, uh, um, uh, masking, uh, mandated universal masking and so forth. And these were the new, un, the new untested policies, but you had a complete inversion of this. And for, in fact, you had uh, the uh, really smart guys like, you know, uh, Nicholas, uh, Nassim Taleb, Taleb, who are, you know, really bright guys explicitly arguing that it should be turned on its head, that the only, you know, that because there's a small, not exponentially tiny negligible, but it's like a, a, a real small chance of the pandemic being really, really, really bad, then we should ignore any cost benefit analysis. We shouldn't even consider the possible downsides of, of overturning society and, you know, all the other economic and potential uh, uh, overthrowing of society that can happen when you, when you start messing with things and messing with civil rights. He only just said, well, there's this possibility of a really big danger for a pandemic. And so, boom, we don't have to do any other calculations. In fact, it's a good idea to even promote panic because it keeps ourselves safe from this really, really rare danger of a really terrible pandemic. But the problem is that the biggest dangers that humans always encounter are from other humans. All of the you know, democides and genocides that have killed uh, hundreds of millions of people just in this century, sorry, this century being last century alone, um, uh, are all by virtue of, of mass uh, uh, sort of delusional and on purpose events from other humans in large numbers choosing to kill or doing such stupid human induced stuff that they end up killing tens of millions or 60 million people of, of their own. Those are the things that happen and they happen quite commonly. So why this is not some, this is, these are these black swan events that he talks about. And he's arguing that, you know, they're, they're really rare, but not negligibly rare, negligibly rare. And so you should just consider them because they're so bad if they would happen. Yeah. But the bad stuff that's really happened, the real black swans, are on the human-induced side, and that's where we should always be looking for these sorts of mass dangerous black swans. Yet it was somehow not considered. So I, I, it, it, um, those were sort of two different kinds of ways in which people were, were were not appreciating the dangers of these new kinds of interventions, which you know uh, uh, span span the entire space of of economic destruction, developing world destruction. Uh, potential, you know, uh, uh, upsetting uh, uh, the governments themselves and leading to coups and, and revolutions. All of these things are exactly the, and not to mention totalitarianism, which is we, we're already deep in totalitarianism in terms of uh, 80% of the world believing that it's totally cool to banish uh, the unclean from society entirely. And I'm cool with that because uh, they deserve it. You know, that's where we yeah. are now. So, so the the vaccine passport. I know well. At least in the United States, you have the bulkhead of you know states 
in, in, for the most part, states having uh, some level of sovereignty or you know or governance, autonomy, uh, as opposed to other countries where when it comes down from central government, that's it. There's no other filters between uh, the local populations around the country. So in, in the United States, you do have that little bit of uh, diversity there that I think means that there's differences in policies potentially between states. Uh, not so lucky here in uh, in Europe, no. certainly right. not. So vaccine passports, how is this playing out right now in America? What, what, where do you think this is going to go? Well, I, I, just back to the, you know, federalism is, you know, most of us uh, as a libertarian myself, it, it's interesting. I, I spent my whole life arguing federalism is great. You want federalism because you want the states to be all independent, evolving on their own so that they can make their own decisions and not have federal government make one, you know, top-down decision that could be dangerous. But an entirely, uh, in principle, I guess I, I should have known this, because, but I never really walked it through. The other argument for federalism, which had never even really had quite occurred to me, is that it's not so much about top-down, because a lot of these forces that are going on now are bottom-up. They're bottom-up, top-down, left-right, right? This is, you know, every time you see someone in their car with a face mask on, that is not required. Every time you see someone on a bike um, with a face mask on, these are two face masks on. These are bottom up forces of people wanting to do what they now believe is right and the good and the righteous thing to do. Right. So each when culture, when this happens in a culture, this is the dangers of totalitarianism. It's often difficult for governments top down to make this happen It's really lucky, so to speak, if they can make it happen, but often it just happens. And then they're able to control the whole society. Federalism is sort of one way to, uh, allow the different cultural, you know, uh, milieus in each of these state end up to be quite different. And so it allows us, allows us to at least experiment and say, okay, some of these cultural milieus are, have not been undergone a, a mass hysteria. And so that's that way they can then allow themselves to, to seek their own path. And it's not so much about, it's not so much driven this argument about the dangers of top down government so much as the benefits of having variability in in the cultures from state to state and how that affects things bottom up. So it, a lot of what we're learning and we should have known uh, prior to this in terms of the way I think about left, right and libertarian and, and balanced powers and, and, you know, and, and, and things like this really has a whole new kinds of justifications, which are no longer just about top down dictatorships and evil coming from top down. But really I think it's a much more general unified framework for understanding governments and the dangers that occur and the dangers that occur are very often bottom up. Uh, they, they're swells from the masses that are demanding that their, their, their governor or whatever uh, stop the dirty people, stop, you know, letting kids go to school. So it, it, these things are in, in the, the governors are often responding to those bottom up pressures just as much as they're responsible for, for pushing down in, in, you know, in a top down manner. So, and a lot of the governors uh, and chief executives are talking about Washington, and, and in the UK it's the same, that uh, they'll defer to the science experts or their science committee or their chief medical officer or chief science advisor, Fauci, Chris Whitty, uh, Patrick Valance in the UK. Uh, they'll, they'll defer to them and say, it's not our decision, we're just following the advice from our public health experts. But when the public health body doesn't... Uh, uh, present information that the politicians want in the UK. The JCVI said no. Va we don't recommend vaccines for uh, children between 12 and 15. And then they were overridden by the political leaders. <laughs> so, the, right. so it, this right. is an interesting yeah. place that we find ourselves in. 
And how much of how much of this do you think has been driven by this this kind of modulation, almost like you could say passing the buck between politicians and these this new elite science uh, um, circle, uh, star chamber, whatever. What do you think about how this has played out? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm certainly there's a there's a huge amount of CYA going on, and but yeah, you're right. In in this case, these folks are not even. Uh, I mean, they could use this as CYA, just covering their eyes. Say, look, the science committee said this, so I'm just going to do what they say, and that basically covers them. But they're actually going out on a limb to be more extreme, and and I, you know, there's two different kinds of ways you can approach it. One is, and a lot of folks on my own side are you know, think, well, there's money there, follow the money. Someone's paying them off to do this. They are part of some grand scheme, but I often think it's simpler, much simpler than this. And, you know, the problem with these sorts of, of, uh, these narratives start and these narratives are, are a lot like blockchains and cryptocurrency, which I, I don't want to get you know technical, but the interesting thing about decentralized, you know, let me, let me back up. Um, Right now in the world, we're moving from financial currencies, which are governed by banks and centralized. And we're sort of moving towards these decentralized financial currencies, which are cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and so forth. And that's advantageous because once they're these cryptocurrencies, they're on everybody's computer, they're distributed, no one can control them. Now, historically, rather than talking about financial currencies, we have reputation currencies. It's just how much you know, reputation I've accumulated by virtue of saying right things and not being too disagreeable of an asshole or whatever. And so you do, you raise in current reputation over time, everybody rises or falls depending on uh, sort of how worthy, worthy their opinion is. Now that's historically always been decentralized. It's always been spread through across the community. There's never been central banks. It was done in, in my research in my next book is, is all about how, what undergirds, how these reputations are spread out within the community and how they change. And in fact, the, the way that it happens is a lot like a blockchain in, in, in financial currency. The reason that we can have Bitcoin work is because once you have this history of saying that, you know, I gave Patrick, you know, 10th of a Bitcoin and then he gave some, all of these things happened this week. No one can come in and like create a new history and say, no, you didn't give Patrick this. He actually gave you. And like, I can, you know, you can't lie about it. You can't, you can't unroll it backwards. And there's really clever tricks which allow cryptocurrency to have things that are spread out everywhere yet unfakeable or, and you can't roll them back. And interestingly, that's how it always worked in social groups. People would have high and low currency, but if, since it was decentralized, you had to make sure that no one could just lie and say, no, I wasn't wrong that day. I wasn't humiliated. It was Mark that he was humiliated. But the way that societies work and social groups work is that they created like gossip and narratives, which are like blockchains. They create these long narratives which continue over time, and they have a lot of properties like blockchains. And since you can't just go back and make a new narrative over the last year that says, no, actually, I was the one who was right about everything, and everybody should like be obeying me and you know kissing my ass because they can know that like you'd have to create an entire new narrative explaining all the events and all the rights and wrongs that happened over the last year, and you just can't. It's impossible to create a story. So once you have a narrative that continues in this way, people then build up reputation within that narrative. It becomes like a club that once you're part of it, you actually believe the things in the narrative because that is why humans believe what we believe. I believe what I believe mostly 99% because people that I respect that are part of my narrative have contributed to these. They, the, the reason they're high reputation is because they've said a lot of true things historically. And so when I keep hearing them say things, 
even though they might be false, but I don't have the ability to go independently test them. I believe them because they're high reputation and they're high reputation because they've been believable and there's, that's where they are. So Fauci and these, these folks, I, they really believe, I think 99% of what they say, sometimes it's CYA, but sometimes they really believe it because who else is around them? It's all of these experts, most of which all over the world, some experts may be saying something else, but they are hearing this echo chamber, which has these narrative blockchain like properties, which they can't unravel. And once you're in one of these, you, there's no way out. It's sort of similar in an analogy to the prior probability stuff that I mentioned before. Once you're in there, we're always part of these narratives and you can't see outside of your narrative because everything that you believe is by virtue of the narrative that you're in and the high reputation people that are in it. So I, th this is what we try to understand at FreeX and trying to understand in a 21st century fashion, the real um, uh, dynamics underlying groups of individuals and how their reputations change over time and why we believe what we believe and why it's so hard to potentially roll these things back and understanding the sort of the mass, the implicit mass that comes out of this by virtue of the natural way people psychologically interact. So a lot of these people are, are evil. Isn't always the, you know, the, the, the dictator in some small African nation who does a coup and kills the old dictator. Those are easy, right? It's because they don't have much power and they try to top down control and then they get killed off by some other coup. Those ones are easy to understand in some sense, because really everybody's still basically hiding and pretending to be free because they don't have good top-down control. The dangerous cases are when whole societies bottom up, left, right, top, and totalitarianisms happen through much different kinds of forces than a simple coup. And there's no top, it's not, it's very hard top-down to make it happen. And why these totalitarianisms happen is because of these complex social networks and how reputation moves within it and how social narratives are built. That's the kind of stuff that we're trying to understand at freex.group, at this free expression group. Yeah, the, the American uh, economist Thomas Sowell uh, had an interesting uh, observation. They were talking about the Soviet system where they centralized science and they, you know, these things were built around ideological uh, structures and so forth. And he said how dangerous this was because if you centralize uh, all aspects of, of government and life, social life, and if, if the central party gets it wrong, then the, the, the potential for damage is catastrophic. If you centralize knowledge in, in science, so to speak, then if you get it wrong, then the, the, the potential is, is going to be catastrophic. He said that knowledge is broadly distributed uh, widely and then tested in different places organically, and then it sends signals back to government. He said traditionally this type of an informal system has, de in a way, a decentralized system like you're talking about was was very efficient uh, as opposed to the kind of central, super centralized Soviet system. So that was his argument saying why, you know, a free, a, a true free market system or this type of, is better than this central centralized socialist government. But um, so that, that kind of reflects, I think, what you're saying. And I, I tend to. Right. And yeah, and they're doing it on both sides. But uh, science is a is a microcosm of really the way we come to truth, even and more broadly within society. Science itself, uh, people like to imagine, if you're not a scientist, that it's this centralized group of people, and, and thus science came out by virtue of, let's say, taking a poll among scientists and finding out that 97% of them supposedly believe in global, you know, uh, warming or whatever. You know, that is not science. Science is just a bunch of folks who are independently uh, rising and lowering reputation by virtue of the claims that they make and the evidence that they provide. 
And over time, all of those disagreements, uh, mostly wrong shit that they're saying, ends up to be uh, moving them slowly toward the truth. Um, but what you don't do is when someone turns out to have a publication that's false, then you don't, that when someone is found out to be false, you don't just erase it, scrub it from the history of, of science. No, it's part of the conversation upon which we're standing now that leads to, you don't say, no, that was misinformation, get rid of it. You know, let's censor them, let's give them a no. It was, it's part of the ladder that moves, allows society to move, uh, science as, it, as and science is a social enterprise. And the same thing happens is now, so they're trying to centralize that and call things the science and it'd be, you know, you're, 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 uh, uh, canceled potentially if you say the wrong kind of thing, nearly all of my colleagues, they're, they're either explicitly or implicitly warned, do not publish anything about COVID. That's not mainstream narrative. In many places, they're explicitly told to do that. But of course, most of them are smart enough to know that they shouldn't even touch it. Right. And, uh, the way that society generally comes to the truth is, is just generalization of the same stuff that scientists do, but, but writ large, you know, with a, with a, with a thousand or 10,000 or a million times larger. And we do this not by censoring individual misinformation or the claim, whatever, even if it was misinformation, which of course we're you know, contesting in these arguments, but even if it was misinformation, the answer is not to censor them or to get rid of the individual or to cancel them. The answer is to argue against this so that you can stand atop it and then keep moving forward. That's how we come to the truth is by virtue of lots and lots of misinformation over time, that's where you, that's how you climb your way toward the truth. You yourself have had uh, quite a lot of experience with censorship, I gather, since the beginning of this. I'm sure you've been warned off. I, I certainly had threats from, you know, my world on Twitter for those first 10 years was, you know, I, as a person who writes books, you know, I'm working on, finished this next book, Expressly Human, is my sixth book. So you I was a public outreach science scientist. So I, you know, a lot of people that I follow were science journalists on Twitter and I never got political ever, except for talking about free expression here and there over the years. Meanwhile, the science journalist world is, is, is all left, you know, 99.9% of the time, um, attacking, uh, those on the right as evil. Uh, and so after finally, I, once COVID hit, I said, I mean, I can't keep my mouth shut. And this is not a left right issue, but I never wanted to become, the vocal scientists, you know, I want people to know me for my discoveries, not because of, of, you know, left, right politics or even libertarianism. I wasn't really what, other than the occasional free expression, but unlike the other kinds of mass hysteria, and there's many of them that have happened, you know, even global warming is a mass hysteria. The woke stuff is sort of just weird hysteria stuff. So many of them, and I didn't want to get involved in them because the arguments, these are what I call instead of virtue signals, these are virtue positions. When someone says a completely absurd thing, it's not really an argument. It's saying I'm part of this team. So, you know, when you, you it, uh, wearing a mask is a virtue signal. It's, it's, it's functionless. In fact, it's harmful. And that's what works for a virtue signal. They shouldn't be a good thing to do because otherwise everybody's going to start doing it. And then it doesn't provide a signal of being a member of that particular virtuous group. It should be something that's ridiculous to do. And there, it, another way to do it is just having a, a virtue position saying something that's ridiculous. And so I, I always know it's like, no, this isn't a real argument. They're just saying this absurd thing like that trans women should be allowed in women's sports. It's ob it wears its absurdity on its sleeve. I'm not even going to answer the debate, you know, just say, no, I'm not part of your club. I'm not even going to bother arguing because it's not a real argument. It's a virtue position. And so I just didn't get into these sorts of arguments. It's a big waste of time. But for COVID, it, was, it wasn't like the kind of friction that's destroying society at such slow rates that we can get past it like these other ones. No, this within within three or four weeks had already devastated 50 million jobs. And you could tell 
that it was leading to uh, already people were acting like snitches on the street. I was out just in March 15th of 2020 with CrossFit fellow guys outside guys and gals. And some lady pulled over in her car and she started to accost us aggressively. Who do you guys think you are? You're hurting people. We're already social distancing outside. Right. And she just, we had to just run away from her to get away. So, you know, like a 60 year old lady, because she was just dead, just, just wanting to, to uh, turn us into the, to the Stasi if she could. So I was like, man, this is not like other stuff that we've seen in our generation. And that was only March 15th of 2020. Right. So, uh, I had to, I just said like, as a public intellectual, uh, who's relatively broad, you know, across the spectrum, who's dealt with cultural evolution and, and, and human psychology and emergent phenomena. I can't just keep the mouth shut. I've got to open it up. So a lot of people on the left, cause they were mostly on the left, these science journals did not like it. They've all unfriended me or explicitly said we should boycott Mark. I wish we could have an app that when I'm trying to find a book at the store, it automatically says, no, don't buy his because <laughs> he doesn't agree with the mainstream narrative, that kind of thing. But what are you going to do at some point? You know, if you don't stand up for the things that are destroying society as quickly as they are, uh, well then, you know, and you can make a difference, uh, then what else is there? So one of your recent science moment, uh, videos you're talking about, um, you know, on social media, how, um, you know, cause you're, you're speaking to this big audience, you know, through Twitter and you have the different channels, YouTube, Telegram, and you have, uh, followers, uh, Patreon and fans and, uh, people who know your work and they, they subscribe to all your stuff. So you're kind of, you're talking to your kind of congregation there. M most of the people are on the same page, but then with family and close friends, on Facebook and so forth, totally different audience. And so you get this thing like Mark, uh, you know, you're, how can you be against the scientific consensus? Or you, you know, are you, are you saying that all the experts and Dr. Fauci and the WHO are all wrong? What's wrong with you? And you said they're printing out uh, Facebook posts and they're circulating through your, yeah. and in reading them back to you and worried that what happened to Mark, what's wrong? There's something we need to save him somehow. Um, that that was a uh, quite interesting because we've all kind of experienced some similar things along those lines. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, for the first year, I avoided Facebook. I just thought, you know, and and I'm I maybe I was right to do that. Maybe I was wrong. I, I'm not entirely sure. But because um, Facebook is filled with your family and friends and uh, you know acquaintances, and I and I was never really into Facebook. I didn't use it much for all those years. It barely tried to use it. I never found it effective. And I thought, why should it be the case that it, that uh, they're all just all of these people are just stewing in this mainstream narrative. They have literally no, it's seemingly no idea that there's any other viewpoint. And yeah, I'm going to piss a bunch off. But if, if, if people like me who actually in principle, they ought to respect because I have more scientific background than most of the people that they know, if I'm not standing up and they, I've been quiet, they're going to potentially take that as evidence that there's, that I'm also on the side of the science. Right. So I went ahead and started to just, you know, doing all the stuff that I've been doing on, on, on Twitter, but reposting it there as well. And yeah, when I first started, I had folks that acquaintances is like, Mark, do you want to talk there? I, I feel like, you know, something's wrong with you. Maybe we should, like, they think there's some kind of psychological problem. My <laughs> sister, you know, my mom, like it turns out some cousin printed out some posts and then sent it to my aunt who then showed my mom of the printout of what I was posting. And she thinks what I'm doing is unconscionable. And, uh, but you know, it's interesting, even in March, 15th of 2020, somewhere around there, there was all these texts that they were group texting my family. You know, they're all talking about it. I said, I just said, look guys, here's the actual IFRs that we know. 
and they're in the flu range. They're just a little bit worse. For, and they, we already know this. And it's like, we don't want to hear your Trump shit. I'm like, guys, I never, you know, was never a Trump supporter even, but I was like, okay, okay, I can't talk about it with them because it already by March 15th, something had clicked. It had become a cult and you could not question it. And so that's why I said, well, maybe it's just not a good idea to, but I've changed my mind on that. And I think that, um, yeah, I, you gotta be the right personality. If things don't roll off your skin and uh, don't do it, you know, so. Yeah, I think you're right. The Trump, the Trump factor that, that was really kind of like an accelerant um, to so much of this. It, it became partisan, uh, everything that became partisan. So I think that was, that was a unique, because he, he being the most kind of uh, divisive, if you will, uh, political figure uh, that forced people to polarize positions on both sides, uh, you know, him being president at the time when this kind of happened, yeah. um, that really made people you know, kind of move into their corners. So I think that was a big, yeah. big factor. Yeah. But it's not, and it's, it's not, it wasn't entirely clear in the first, other than the story that I just mentioned, it wasn't entirely clear. We had a tremendous number of, of people on the right who had gone full on Karen. A lot of my libertarian people still are Karen to this point. And I had in the beginning, a lot of it was communists that were on my side. I hadn't really found a huge community of folks that agreed with me on Twitter. And some of the first ones were communists and the communists were like, Dude, I, I, like you can't have a functioning economy. We, econ we economists know you can't have a functioning economy under a lockdown. That just doesn't work, you know. So there was people from all sides and hadn't quite become fully polarized. And, it was, you know, Trump was on the side of lockdown in the beginning. He was, you know, he, it was his recommendations to all the governors. So it was not entirely clear that it would have played out polarization-wise as it did. But, of course, it, there's a lot of counterexamples. It, it, you know, a lot of the people that follow me were formerly on the left or still consider themselves on the left but in terms of this issue. It's not a left-right thing at all. I've got another science moment. You know, my most viewed one is just trying to explain how this, is, this debate isn't about left-right. It's about up-down within that standard two-dimensional you know, economic freedoms versus personal freedoms. The entire debate is vertical now, not left-right. Um, it's up, you know, liberty-oriented versus down, authoritarian-oriented. Uh, and... Um, those who think it's left-right are potentially then have the view that they have because of left-right polarized polarization reasons rather than uh, for, you know, they've been pulled in by virtue of the narrative that they were already on. And once their narrative clicked over that it's going to go this way, they had no choice because everybody, not no choice, but they didn't even know what was happening, but all the high reputation and narrative moved over there. And so um, they're going to move as well because anybody would who's positioned in the network like they are, we would all move. So I, you know, I attribute my ability to be not under this mass solution because I've always tried to be aloof. Uh, you know, as a scientist, I wish to teach my students remain aloof for scientific reasons so that you can work on one great idea, but then you can move on to a new field because if you're not aloof, you're going to end up staying field. You get to know everybody in the field. You could become a, a sort of a, a just stuck in there and you can't move on. There's sort of a lot to talk about on the sides of aloof, but I was naturally both politically aloof and, and intellectually aloof. And where you sit within the network is in, is in some sense entirely what's going to determine whether you get pulled in by these mass illusions. If I had been sitting in within the network like other folks who got pulled in, I think I would have gotten pulled in just like they did because we all acquire our beliefs mostly through the networks that we're in. So I, I attribute it basically to, to where I happen to sit within the network. 
Uh, absolutely. You know, the chief science advisors uh, in the UK, they're all have a background with big pharmaceutical companies, their whole career, basically straight out of university into the research labs with uh, GSK or Pfizer or whatever. And so they, they would be true believers in uh, yeah. any pharmaceutical intervention, wouldn't they? Yeah, they really, I mean, they, it, both a conflict of interest, but they also truly believe, you know, that's what this, some, uh, and, and it's not like they're, we like to imagine, no, you're lying because you're benefiting from it. No, they're benefiting from it and they truly believe, which makes it, it they're equally evil and being acting in, in culpable, but it's also just life is trickier than what we'd like to make out where these, these evil people who know that they're evil twiddling their mustaches. No, unfortunately, most evil people think that they're doing good and have no idea that they're, you know, that the conflict of interest is what's driving them. And uh, that's what makes us hard. So, so just got a couple minutes left. I'm, I'm looking at FreeX. Uh, this is a FreeX.group. And I, I like this intro, securing the mechanisms of free expression and the fruits of freedom to which it leads while ensuring those mechanisms function smoothly and avoid the mass delusions that are civilization's greatest threat. So tell us about this and some of these projects that uh, you've got going. Yeah, so FreeX, uh, dot group is you know, short for Free Expression Group. It's basically just a research institute. So it's a colleague of mine, a long, long-term colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Tim Barber and I. Um, it's, you know, the, for the last decade, we've been working on this grand unifying theory of why creatures, social creatures, have emotional expressions. And we have this beautiful theory that shows, you know, the full suite of emotional expressions we have. And emotional expressions are how we bet reputation. If I, if I show, if I'm, uh, show anger to you, say, no, like I should totally get more of the, of the zucchini bread. And it turns out, then we go ask mom and I was wrong. Then I lose reputation because I was, you know, I was bluffing all of the kinds of, to understand the, what we're doing with emotional expressions is part and parcel to understand kind of poker game of betting of life, all of the metaphors of like, Oh, she, but then she doubled down. Can you believe it? And, social life is filled with poker metaphors and it's because all of these sorts of emotional expressions that we do involve betting social capital or betting reputation. So understanding the emotional expressions, like we've been building this grand unifying theory is sort of the first in the scaffold in terms of understanding how reputation networks in general function. And if you, that's what you want to understand. If you want to understand how free expression works, the importance of free expression and how it functions in an emerging system to work effectively and how it can mess up like it did last March. Uh, and it really was a mess up because you have social networks now, which in the entire world is connected, but you have social networks where we are not, we are not interacting as we should. We aren't able to uh, uh, emotionally express in our tweets and in our Facebook posts. Somehow social media knows that you have to put emotions in there, which is why Facebook has like whatever, five different kind of emoticons that you can click at the bottom, not just like it. You can look happy or sad, but this is not what you need to, to be truly able to interact such that I can not only say something, but put reputation on the line and then other people can react to it. And we can have like a back and forth about it, like a little negotiation or fight about it. And then one of us turns out to be right and others see it These are, and, and gossip is spread about who was right or wrong to make these things work requires that we emotion be able to uh, appropriately emotionally express to another that that's how, how we do it in real life. So trying to understand these mechanisms upon which reputation networks lie upon which these uh, mass hysteria things broke. And so the more that mass hysteria happens and the more that these social networks break, like they did, the more centralized, the more governments are going to come in there and say, well, we need something else. We need centralized fact checkers instead. 
And then in some sense, they have an argument because it really did mess up last March. So that we've got, the, of course, they don't understand why it messed up. They don't agree with my explanation, but it, it does provide an argument saying, yeah, if, if social networks are going to mess up this much that it creates these mass hysterias, well, maybe it is better to have centralized fact checkers just say, here's what's right. So that next time, I mean, we don't get crazy about the pandemic. We just say, actually, the, the IFAR, you know, the, the infection fatality rates are really low. Here's all of the things about it. Let's everybody calm down. That would have been great. But it wouldn't be great because you can't have you can't rely on centralized organizations, uh, fact checkers. In truth, you really need to leave leave it decentralized. But to do it correctly, you have to understand how it works and how the dynamics works and how the physics of social networks work. And that's what we're um, now working on. Yeah, I mean that opens up a you just blasted the a whole wall through the whole concept of journalism, which uh, is very much reputation based, but. Uh, it has a problem with its reputation at the moment. I mean, that's a whole other area of discussion um, in terms of <laughs> that story. But you've got a number of great books here that you've written over the years, Brain from 25,000 Feet, The Vision Revolution, Harnessed. Um, you can obviously, I, I assume, get all of your books are available uh, on Amazon. Uh, yes, uh, one of them is a, a, a hybrid novel, Human 3.0. That's only available at my website, changizi.com. Uh, sort of well, what's next after what's next after human. Uh, but yeah. Um, but yeah, the next book will uh, expressly human will be available next year. And there's, there's a link to changizi.com on our show page right now. There's also a link to Mark's uh, Twitter account as probably where uh, the, the most activity is probably on a daily basis, but I'll also subscribe to your telegram channel. That's good as well. So uh, check out Mark's work, everybody as well on YouTube. Uh, his science moments are very instructive but uh, I'm going to thank you, Mark, for joining us this week. It's been a great discussion. Obviously, a lot of good jump-off points here for a lot of different things. So hopefully it will uh, uh, spur people's uh, intellectual curiosity. And uh, we hope we can uh, have another conversation with you in the future. All right. Thanks for having me. And stay unsafe. That's <laughs> all right. We'll do our best. Don't worry. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That's Mark Changizi, Dr. Mark Changizi. And uh, you can check out his work uh, in a number of different platforms. I do recommend it. Uh, we're going to take a brief break and we're going to come back for our final segment. Uh, this is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We'll be right back after this short station break with ACR. A mouse who finds himself drowning in a bucket of cream has two choices. Drown or fight so hard he churns that cream into butter. And simply climbs out. 